I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. I am once again joined by the founder of Six Sight CO, ex-British Special Forces Commando and corporate spy, my friend, Sonny Smith. Sonny, thank you very much for joining me again on the Silver Core Podcast. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to chat. Man, we've been talking about so many cool things since our last podcast that uh, we decided, you know, there's going to be some points in here that the general public would probably like to hear about as well. And one of them we we're talking about was, well, I guess specifically, uh, special forces selection, because I know that's something that, uh, is intriguing for a lot of people. I remember as a teenager reading the Andy McNabb book, uh, immediate action and absolutely loving the, uh, the detailing process of, uh, what brought them through that. But from your perspective, what in your background sort of drove you to want to, to uh, submit yourself to such arduous, such an arduous selection process? Well, at the beginning, I didn't aim for special forces or I had that in the back of my head, but I didn't tell anyone about that, which is a, a good thing to do. If you are thinking of it, you don't talk <laughs> about it. Like, especially if you walk into a recruiter's office, don't say, I want to go special forces because they'll laugh in your face. You need to learn to walk before, lead to, learn to walk, crawl before you can run and all that. Uh, but I think it was just striving to be the best. If I'm going to do something, I might as well try and go as far as I can go. And, and that's a stepping stone process as well. Um, so that's why I joined the Royal Marine Commandos, first of all, because in the UK, they're considered the best entry level um, infantry that you can be. Um, and the paras are close second. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've heard the paras are a pretty good route to go as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have to give the paras respect because I was actually focused on them as a youngster and I met a Royal Marine Commando who's a close friend of mine and he steered me in that direction. Okay. And I'm very happy about the decision I made. Um, but yeah, they're both good units. Yeah. Um, but to go for special forces, yeah, start off in the infantry and then work, build your basic skill levels up because being in special forces, it's, uh, basics of really what matters. And that's the difference is knowing the basics very well. And then you can build on top of that. Uh, in terms of pushing yourself to the limits, uh, you have to be smart about it, but there's no easy way to get around the pain. <laughs> it's coming, you know, and you have yes. to get into the pain early on. You can't just turn up and get into the pain. You have to get into the pain every day, every morning, uh, training hard. So, uh, so what do you mean getting into the pain every day, early morning? Is that just like a mental switch that you're like, okay, we're on, we're doing this. Yeah. Once I made the decision that I was going to go for selection, um, then I just decided that I was going to do the training that I needed to do to pass, um, which in the British special forces is, uh, we call it yomping in the Royal Marines, but it's, uh, ruck marching and carrying a lot of weight over long distances mm. over mountainous terrain. So I, with that goal in mind at first, I just started training in that regard. And that's a very painful thing to do because it's long time. It's a long uh, duration of running with heavy weights that 
you're just your back's hurting, your shoulders are hurting with the weight of the pack, and then mm. you're obviously your legs are burning, your lungs are burning. Um, so it's not a comfortable experience. It's obviously not supposed to be comfortable. Right. But it is a bit different to um, some of the American special forces selections, like Buds for the Seals. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of uh, like PT in, in a beach setting, and you have instructors on your back, like shouting at you. And and if you do something wrong, then they're right on top of you. For our selection, you're pretty much on your own. You don't get any guidance, and and that's part of it. It's uh, a lot of it is psychological, to be honest, and that, that that's on purpose. That's a very interesting aspect to it. Cause like, I mean, reading through, and I know his name's not actually Andy McNabb, yeah. but uh, reading through Andy McNabb's book that he had when I, I think he was one of the early ones to really kind of delve into the whole selection process. He talks about his earlier days and his upbringing and he's a, a little bit of a delinquent. Uh, <laughs> do you find that to be sort of a, a common trend in, uh, perhaps people who want to push themselves to these special forces level? For my personal experience, I'd say yes. Yeah. Um, although there's, uh, there's always different backgrounds, but I think you have to be a bit of a, an adventurer and a, I call myself a bit of a wild man cause I am, right. you know, I just a bit spontaneous and, uh, I like to just do stuff even if I make mistakes, but, and I did make mistakes when I was younger. Um, and I learned from them, but you do have to be that sort of person that's going to step forward, uh, when everyone else is kind of questioning, looking around, what's everyone else doing? Mm. Uh, so you have to be a, a, a go-getter. Is that sort of like a counter culture mentality or maybe like oppositional defiance, sort of a, uh, uh, a mentality that people have where they're like, you're not telling me what to do. I can figure this out and I can push through and I've got my own way of doing it is. Is that sort of, uh, yeah, it could be, it could be, you have to be very independent and you don't have help from anyone. So in the Mm. Marines, it's very much a team, uh, select, um, like training aspect you're all looking after each other. And when you go for special forces, you're on your own, although there's team elements, Mm -hmm. but you're looked at as an individual candidate. Um, and say, if you're doing a ruck march, you don't pull back to help someone else, um, because you'll, you'll get failed for doing so like that person's on really? their own. Yeah. You, you leave them, but in the Marines, you would all come together and help that individual team member. Um, so there's a bit of a difference there. So I, I guess it's gotta be difficult when you get, you're trying to build a cohesive team of special forces individuals and you're doing so by specifically selecting people who are individually minded and very strong willed. Yeah. Is how does that work once, once you're sort of in the, I mean, I'm kind of jumping a few spaces past the whole selection process, but how does that work in the team environment? Having so many individuals, is there a lot of friction that can kind of happen or is the shared Uh, experience enough to. Yeah. I think there's a difference between like, I'm still team players and being an individual, uh, meaning that you can operate on your own. You can do everything independently, but the the leader aspect. Um, see, I'm not a natural leader, but I still did well. Um, and I can step up to that plate when I want to and I need to, but I don't lead, um, a lot of the time. I'm quite happy to be a team member. So yeah, you do have the people that push out the front, but also those people that are always stepping up and trying to control things, they're not going to do very well in selection, uh, because you need to be a gray man. And that is, uh, drilled into you. If anyone that gives you advice before you go on selection, it's get your head down, 
be proficient in your skills and drills and be a gray man. You don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons mm. um, and make it drawing attention to yourself. Uh, you can draw attention to yourself by being good at your job, not for other reasons. If you're, let's say, uh, completing a tab or a route march or something, uh, well ahead of everybody else, would that be separating yourself from the gray man? Like, would you intentionally try and keep yourself back a bit if there's some areas that you know you could do quite well in? Uh, I wouldn't intentionally pull myself back, but I do know on my selection, there was a guy who was way ahead of everyone and he was really going for it. And, uh, there was talk about him just being a bit too cocky in that role and he didn't make it at the end. I don't know if that weighed on him, but also he was, it's a long process and the heels phase is just one phase of selection. And he, I don't know where he dropped off, but he burnt himself very heavily in the earliest stage of selection. Mm. And it's, it's a long process. You, if you get any injuries during that phase, you're carrying them onto even harder, arduous uh, activities later down the line. And it's not an intelligent thing to do because there's a pass and a fail at the end of the day. Um, so it's not like you hundred percent pass. You've just got pass. It's like going to see yeah. a doctor, I guess. You don't know if they came top of their class or they just kind of eked through. They're still a doctor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. Um, so what, um, what were the steps that were required once you're Royal Marine, uh, in order to make that next transition and to apply for special forces? What, what would you have to do? Uh, you do have to have a certain amount of years service. I believe it was, uh, two years of, of, of Royal Marine service to get that experience as a soldier. And you wouldn't want to go straight into it mm. anyway, because you do need to be a, a high level soldier in all areas. Um, and have the basics down. And for me, I actually was in a command role before I decided to go. So in the British military, in the Marines, even in the army, they have slightly different ranking systems. We have Marine, Lance Corporal, and then Corporal. And I was at the rank of Corporal when I went for a selection. And that helped me because I'd improved as a soldier by taking that command of men at that time. Right. And before that, I didn't have the as good understanding of certain things like section, section attacks and stuff like that and, and how the mechanics worked and going into the special forces, it would, it was a big part of okay. the, the knowledge base that I needed. So yeah, I, I did it at the right time actually for me. And I'm sure that built a lot of confidence as well, having the extra years in and the, uh, the experience there. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I, like I think I mentioned on the last podcast, when I did that corporal's course, um, that you have to go away to do, uh, there was two special forces guys on that course with me and I was working with them closely for, uh, a number of weeks and they became first and second on that course. And I was number three and they pulled me aside at the end of the course and said, oh, when are you coming down to our, our unit and having a go? And it was always in my head at that time, but from that little discussion that was like, okay, they seen something in me that they thought I was good enough. And before I'd actually met them, I hadn't met anyone in the British special forces as a, in a friend capacity or worked alongside of them. And it was good to have that exposure because I realized that they are, they're exceptionally good, but they're not 
gods. And that's right. the image I had was that these are the people that gods, like they me- never make a mistake. They're just perfect in every aspect. Right. And I had that image of Royal Marines before I joined. And then yeah. when you get to that, you work hard to get to that standard. Um, you could still think you're a god, but, <laughs> it, you know, it's doable. You can do it. And then the same thing happened with the, when I did selection and went down there. Uh, you just build gradually and then you get there eventually. And then when you're there, you're like, wow, it was horrendous, but it's achievable in, if you, if you do it smartly. It's amazing how many people have that perception of, it's just, these people are superhuman. Yeah. They're so different from normal people, but I like how you put that because I find it, I find it's like this in so many facets of day-to-day life. It's not that they're so awesome in one particular area. It's that they've gotten very good at perfecting the basics and very good at perfecting the small things that are required in order to be able to make the overall come together in, in, in such a way. Um, you know, we've, in our training courses that we do, and we've got different levels of, uh, firearms training courses and our level one, two, and three, and we always get people saying, oh, I want to do a level four course. I want to do a level five course. I want to start here because I've, I'm pretty, pretty good. And what most of these people actually don't realize is that the very high end, high level courses require a very, very strong proficiency in the absolute basics, just Mm -hmm. like the absolute basic things that you need in order to be proficient. And you drill those down to such a level. Now you're at that godlike level. Is that similar to what you're finding? Oh, it's definitely, that's an accurate description of it. That is it to a T, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You really do have to focus on the basic skills because you are a soldier at the end of the day. And, and when you're on the ground, you're actually doing the same role, the same techniques and things that you would use as an infantry soldier in the Royal Marines. Uh, and then you may have got there by parachuting or some <laughs> other glamorous way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you have to build off the basics is a, is a good message. So that takes you, now you've got the nod, you got people saying, come on, give it a shot. So you decide to put your name in and, uh, see what would happen. There's a lot of people that do that. I, I should imagine a lot of people probably want to put their name and do they all get looked at? Uh, if you fit the criteria and your commanding officer of your unit, um, approves, which usually they do, um, because it's actually quite a good way to feed into the special forces. It's looked at, everyone should have a go at it. I believe uh, if you want to be, if you've already joined the Royal Marines, then you've already taken that step to join, uh, a prestigious high level organization. Um, and you want to be a fighting soldier. You don't join the Royal Marines because you want to drive, uh, trucks or right. anything else, right. uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so once you've taken that step, I think you should work towards it. If, if that's what you want to do with your life, because once you get to that special forces level, the whole, your, your everyday life is just completely different. There's a different outlook on you. You're seen as the top of the table basically. Um, and you don't have to do a lot of the stuff that you have to do in the military anymore. For instance, cut your hair, salute, <laughs> say call officers by sir or anything like that. It's just relaxed because you've already proven that you're proficient and good enough. And now all that stuff doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. Now you've got bigger things to worry about. You know what I mean? Very cool. Yeah. Mm. That would be, um, 
that would be something to shoot for, for sure. I would think everybody would want to put a little bit extra effort in to at least try for that. Um, yeah. But when we say little bit extra effort, so you get the nod, you're in there, you've yeah. been called down, CO says, a boy, good to go. So then you apply through the, the military system and then you have, uh, this, they call them briefing courses, which is the first test, um, that you do. So the SAS has a, a traditionally an easier briefing course and then a harder pre-selection. So you have a pre-selection. You don't just turn up on day one in Andy McNabb's day, you just turned up and you went right. onto the hills in the Brecon beacons and started. And now they have a buildup of, uh, different things. And down at the SBS, they have a, a briefing course, which is, uh, it's a one week course and it's traditionally harder than the eight week buildup before selection. So I knew that I was going for an extremely hard one week. Right. And so the training started very early on. Um, so I was yomping as we call it in the Marines, but tabbing, uh, and training my legs and my back and stuff just for, to carry heavy loads across, um, mountainous terrain. So when you say heavy loads, what are we talking? Uh, well, it does vary a lot for different marches. Um, there was one march on that, uh, briefing course, I believe it was around 75 to 80 pounds, but that isn't the actual weight. That's the weight that you weigh the Bergen before the day. And then you have to carry water and yet you, you have to carry a certain amount of water, obviously for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. And then you have to carry your food as well. Cause the marches do go on sometimes like eight hours and, and the biggest one is mine was uh 18 and a half hours that was actually on selection that was one of the marches called long drag which is the famous last one you do so the fan dance uh or no that's a different one actually oh, okay that's at the in the that's quite early on at the first week okay but that is a that's a different one because the speed is different and um it's, it's very famous as well because people have died on that one um candidates have died in the past because of the the mountain is a, is quite a unforgiving place and the weather can come in. Uh, and in the summer, um, we lost a few guys uh, a few years back from heat exhaustion, mm. three guys on one selection course on the same day. Holy Actually, true. Yeah. I think it was three or two or three, um, which was quite horrendous. I wasn't in at that time, but everyone in the British military heard about that. Um, so 80 pounds and you got water and then you got food and that's, you're probably, that's another 10 pounds anyways on your back. Yeah. About so that you. was, that was one March, but the normal weight is 55 pounds okay. for the Bergen. Then you've got a rifle and, and other stuff. So on a normal March, you're going maybe 65 to 70 pounds of weight. Um, and that's, yeah, that's still, it's a, it's a heavy load, you know? And through that March there, you've, you don't know when it's going to end. You said you've got like on the, the long drag is 18 hours. Do you have a deadline on that or are they continually moving the finish line on you? Uh, on that one, you, you kind of know that one because it's, uh, it's so famous that people talk about it. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but the others in the mid, in the, in the middle of the course is, is when you literally, you, they drive you in the morning to, uh the start point and they don't tell you where that is. So you have to follow on your map in the, in the area and figure out where you're starting at. And then they just give you the, the coordinates for the next 
grid, like the grid reference to the next uh, checkpoint and then you get there and then you get another one and you just keep going like that until finally you see the trucks and stuff at one checkpoint and you don't know when that's going to be so yeah it varies some days you could be going for four five hours some days it could be up to eight hours but wow yeah it's, it's not uh it's, it's quite psychologically um testing because of that as well um and people do fail because they think they're way behind and then the next checkpoint is only there and <laughs> they've talked themselves out of it basically yeah i remember as a uh, as a kid just having to push a car and uh, and just thinking about that whole psychological thing there was a couple of us were pushing a car down the road and i didn't know where the car was supposed to be ending up and one person jokingly said Oh, it's going to be up around the block and, and, and down the next side when we're really about one house away of where we <laughs> needed to go. And we're running with this thing and pushing it for about a block anyways. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to take a break because if we got that much further to go and realized that person started steering in their driveway and <sighs> like, now I look like the guy who's <laughs> just couldn't, couldn't make it to the end here. Yeah. And I always held that in the back of my head as a, um. Uh, just a little bit of a lesson about the, uh, the power of the, uh, of your mind to be able to continue pushing through. Cause I felt knackered there, but hell, if, if it was only one more house I had to go, I could have continued, I could have done it. And, and I have to imagine just on a much bigger scale, not pushing a car a block, right? yeah. but on a much bigger scale, um, that mental process of, um, I can do it, that must that must take a lot of, um, I guess, straight up willpower, just, just push as opposed to anything else. I would think, I don't know what, what, what do you do? What did you find yourself doing to be able to push yourself when you didn't know where that deadline was? Uh, first of all, I, um, if I had failed selection, I had, I would have had a hard time in my life. So I cut ties. Uh, I actually did selection as a reservist. Okay. Um, but I did the regular selection um, and there was a part that was missed out, which was the jungle phase, which we did a, a different phase in the UK. Right. But I was in there with everyone else. Um, so it's joint together, joint special forces selection. So I'd gone as a reservist. So I had a job and stuff as well. Mm. So I quit my job, quit where I was living and, and I focused solely on that. So if I failed, I would be homeless and jobless. Ah. So, but that was a technique that I learned in my life. Like, I have to go all in on things. Um, and then that's in my mind as well. Like there's no fallback plan here. I'm full steam ahead. So there's no turning back. I like that. Yeah. That's just something that I like to do because I know there's no other way out of it. I've got to go forward, but also actually when you're on the marches and stuff, I have a very imaginative mind and I like to daydream. And I've actually spoken to friends in the Marines and talking about running and I was, and I'd say about, Oh, when you're running, um, I just go off and I daydream about things and my mind can be gone for a while and then mm. I come back and I feel the pain again. Um, but yeah, I can go away and just daydream about things for a long time. That's cool. And, yeah. And some, and I speak to other people and they're like, and I talk about that and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, you can't, you don't do that. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> So I don't know, maybe I have something that other people don't, but that, honestly, 
how do you find your situational awareness when you're, when you're in that daydream process? Is it kind of, are you still able to be able to pick up on the key things that you need to? Uh, yeah, I seem to just be okay. Like, and, and when I was on this, uh, on the Hills selection, I was actually, I had two songs in my head, which I could never listen to again. And I would just sing <laughs> those songs over and over again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I could never listen to those songs again. <laughs> and they were very strange songs. It was that Pina Colada song, yeah, you know, and also the, another one that's, I don't like cricket. I love it. Do you <laughs> know, right. it's just, yeah. I just heard them on the radio and I couldn't get them out of my head. Yeah. But once I started going through all the lyrics in my head, it just played over, over, over again. That just passed the time because a lot of it was, it was hours of just running and marching on my own and you can't listen to music and usually I like to listen to music if I run and get into a bit of like a daydream state but that's funny because yeah. how you describe that I actually do something similar oh, so yeah? if I've got a pack on I'm going up the mountain and it's I know I've got a long distance to go. I will do the same thing. I'll make up my own songs, usually to a beat sort of like pina colada, yeah. some goofy thing like this, <laughs> but I'll make up my own words inside there and that uh I'm I've never actually heard somebody say the same thing before. Yeah, no, it is definitely a uh, technique and I don't know if it's taught to people, but maybe people can start trying to do it because it's been a really beneficial for me and I did it in Royal Marine training as well because yeah. there's a lot of running and stuff in that and long distance uh, marches. So I think it is very beneficial. I don't know what you would think about. I can't like do something <laughs> and just think about this is horrendous. This is horrendous like, all the way around. <laughs> you have to take your mind somewhere else. Well, I, I started it simply because I was in grizzly country in an area oh. with a lot of grizzlies and a ton of grizzly sign and you're spotting them all over. And so I just figured I'd make noise and I'd sing something out loud <laughs> and it was just something that comes to your head. And then after a while... It's just something I continue to do and I would either just sing it in my head because you don't want to sound like a lunatic singing weird lyrics and, yeah. but, um, <laughs> luckily no one else was around to listen to. No, and you didn't get attacked by any bears either. So no, no, I was able, I was good on that one. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I, I definitely use it. I think they should maybe, maybe people have studied it. Maybe it is a technique of a, like a mind. Mantra. Yeah. I don't know. But also I'd like to daydream about the end result of what I was going to achieve if I passed. Okay. That's another big factor that I used when I was a Royal Marine, like actually getting presented with my beret. And then in, in, ah. in selection, I'd always think about what the end goal is. And that'd be another daydream that I'll go deep into. And I still do this all the time. <laughs> That's, um, you know, being able to focus on that end goal to make it happen. They call it like manifest destiny. You think mm -hmm. about it, it'll end up happening. Um, some people agree or disagree, but from the psychological perseverance factor, I think that's massive. That's, yeah. uh, ah, it's interesting. So when you're, you didn't do the jungle, uh, phase, no. uh, jungle phase, how long does that usually last? It's about a month okay. roughly. Yeah. So we did an SOP phase. So in the hills, you're tested on your mindset and a little bit of navigation, but mainly it's physical fitness and your robustness as a soldier. Mm. And then when you go to the jungle, my phase was the SOP phase was held in the UK. You're tested on your soldiering skills and um, how you work in a team, okay. um, but also a bit of it's arduous as well. Um, so I was doing stuff. Uh, like jungle drills in the UK and stuff, but I did mine in November, so it was pretty cold and we had a small team of guys, but to a point that you was bringing up just now, we did one activity whilst in the field, which was uh, 
which was one of the hardest things I've done, but it came out of nowhere. Um, so we did a river crossing, which is a normal thing to do in the Royal Marines. But the idea was just to get you and your kit soaking wet. Right. And it was November, so it was freezing. There was like ice on the floor. So we did this uh, river crossing around 6 p.m. after other training. We'd been doing other stuff. And then we got out and then they had this massive... Um, this massive block, which was, I don't know how much it weighed, maybe 200 pounds or, or more. And they had these straps on it and we'd used it in exercises and they said it was a WMD, but it was just like for messing us around purposes, right. basically. It's just a heavy, heavy, big metal box yeah. with straps on it. And uh, they said, all right, pick it up. We also had our Bergens and field kits. So our Bergens and everything was heavy as it was and rifles and everything. So we picked it up. And it started around, I remember looking at my watch, started around 7 p.m. And they said, right, you've got to carry this uh, to the next grid coordinate. And this is it, off you go. So there was six of us at this time. So two of us could have a rest, but they were still running with their Bergen and everything. Uh, and so we started at 7 and we, we, we'd go. And I remember lifting it first and thinking, oh, wow, this is heavy. And we literally run about, I don't know, 30 meters and then have to stop and then run bit 30 meters and then have to stop because of the weight of it was pulling our shoulders like down. Right. And we'd get in a system where we rotated. So that went for a couple of hours and we kept getting to this next grid reference. And then the guy would say, next one, off you go. We kept doing it. So then four hours went past <laughs> and it was the middle of the night. <laughs> and then six hours went past. And then it turns out we did it for 12 hours. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And it went into the morning, like seven in the morning. Yeah. And then we had to uh, have a whole day of like break contacts and which is a very arduous activity anyway. And, and very, you have to think about a lot when you're like breaking away from the enemy, firing, maneuvering. Right. Um, so there was things like that, that you didn't know when the end was going to be. And it was a psychological test. And also on that exercise, they gave us one ration pack for one day. And we were out there on this part of the exercise was a seven day out in the field um, and then they'll give us little bits of food after a few days but we were very um, weak as well wow so we didn't have much food so that it was, it was a, that was one of the hardest aspects actually which is is an unusual one because there was no tactical advantage of that it was just let's see who's going to break or basically put them into this mindset where they're extremely fatigued and then we're going to test them as a soldier yeah. I think that was the purpose so they say that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yeah. But not necessarily, right? I mean, you can be poisoning a person slowly over time. They might not be dead, but they <laughs> might not be stronger, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's, uh, how you, how your body responds to the, uh, the hardship and then how your mind responds to the hardship is what can eventually make you stronger. Did you find that some people were unable to cope with that and eventually, now they're carrying with them the, the psychological, um, hardship ongoing or is. You mean people that passed or people that failed? Uh, well, I guess maybe, or well, maybe both. I yeah. mean, like the people that failed, I, I know some people have gone through and have uh, been unsuccessful at selection and it took a long time for them to get their heads squared around that one because they felt, uh, poorly about it. Um, but. As yeah. well, some people who've been successful with it that have gone through and, uh, some people have, uh, absolutely loved their experiences and some people look back and say, I wish I did something differently. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
I think the pendulum swings both ways because I remember seeing a lot of soldiers with me and I was, I missed the whole Afghan sort of ops. So Mm -hmm. I was in a, I was a corporal, so I I was quite established and I was experienced in soldiering, but I hadn't done an actual operation. And there's a whole generation of us now that haven't had that experience. But there were guys in my uh, selection who had had like three or four tours of uh, like, mix of afghan and iraq and there's one guy in particular who was one of the most switched on proficient soldiers i've ever worked with and met but he was a little bit older um so he had the mindset obviously but his body wasn't holding up anymore through the hills and and everything else so he failed because he's of injuries and this is a common occurrence Mm. um so he he was exceptionally skilled, but his body just couldn't take it. But he was only like 31 at that time, and I was a lot younger. Right. Um, so you do lose a lot of people because of like the physical like smashing that you take. Yes. Um, but in terms of if people actually um, psychologically affected from it, I think you just take the positives. Like that's the part of the purpose because you go through all that then and then the next time you're in the situation you're like well this is easy because i've already been through not eating for four days right still operating um with no sleep over those three days or something as well um so yeah it's good to go through the hardship if you want uh the best soldier at the end of end of the uh selection process so you're watching the clock you're looking at your watch as you go through there seven o'clock and here we go did you find the minutes just start dragging on or? Yeah. Well, I, I, it was so, this thing was so heavy that we, at the end we could do like five, six steps and then you nearly collapsing. Mm. And I just thought, uh, we're going to do this for a few hours. They like, simply can't go further than a few hours because this is so heavy. Like we can't move it. Right. It's taken so long and it just kept going and going and. We weren't really allowed to talk to each other. So it was just like catching glimpses of people like, is this for real? Are we just going to keep going? Like, <laughs> And later in that actual course, because um, we do a lot of amphibious stuff and Klepper is the, uh, like a t- two-person kayak that we used. Okay. It was actually later on that same exercise, we had to cle- build this Klepper. We have to carry it on your back as well, part of that. And then uh, paddle out quite far and then back in uh to like the the base mm. um, and when we came back in from the base uh, a few lads had actually gone down three of them had a uh, hypothermia and stuff and they failed yeah. because of it um and i don't know those people didn't have so much meat on them and stuff right but they were extremely fit they had already already passed hills phase and they'd already done some very extreme stuff i think Mm, it was a bit questionable in my mind why they needed to fail because it wasn't their mind that failed. They still right. got to the end. It was their body that failed, but yeah, I don't know. It's got to be rough. Yeah. That'd yeah. be rough. Putting yourself through all of that only to find out that you're hypothermic just based on yeah, yeah. being and too fit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of people do get to the end of these phases, especially the jungle and the stories come out from the, the guys that went to the jungle they get to the end and then you get what's called a stand up fail. And that's like the, the DS, the training team right. say, we don't like you basically, or there's <laughs> something you did a long time ago in week one of this, that's a red flag and you're out, but we let you go till the end because 
pickers yeah. are assholes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and a lot of people do get failed on their personality um, because in in the hills phase you're just a number, but when you move further down the line, then you start they looking at you as an individual, um, the type of person you are, and how you work under pressure and there's certain attributes which they don't tell you i don't even know what they are right um but if you tick one of those boxes you're gone and there's obviously a lot of thought and there's reason behind it um mm. yeah selfishness is one of the main ones um and integrity i know for a fact so integrity in the military especially in the royal marines is is one of the biggest aspects that you could take in and any sort of lying or deception uh you'll be in a bad place if you get found out of, nice. of not being truthful and that's uh that's something i can definitely get behind mm -hmm. i and uh, you know anybody working at silver core tell them the same thing you know if you make a mistake that's okay people make mistakes happens all the time uh we'll take a look at what we can do to fix it so it doesn't happen again and if that mistake keeps happening over over again then maybe we're gonna have to have a chat to see why that is if you lie about what you're doing or for whatever reason, create a situation where you can't be trusted. That's it. Cause yeah. I've got no time to be around people that you just can't trust. I have no problem if people make mistakes and I, and I can a hundred percent get behind that as well, but I find it interesting. Now you've got a special forces individual who's going to be required to be deceptive in escape and evasion type situations or to, uh, essentially, um, be the gray man and bend sort of societal norms. Yeah. Um, how does that work? Uh, well, you're still loyal to your side and your team. So right. yeah, there's always like the enemy in yourselves. Right. So yeah. Integrity is, is, is such an important part of being a soldier in general, but in the special forces, it would be even higher than that uh, because the things that you're taught and you learn can really jeopardize um, larger scale operations and even diplomatic uh, relations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Do they yeah. do, I've, I remember reading about a, a bit of an interrogation phase. Did, did you have to go through something like that? Yeah. Yeah, you do. And it's called SEER um, and it's a, uh, it's a course and it's probably the most knowledge knowledgeable course that I went through that the one that I took the most from and it was the most interesting and I'd love to do this sort of training again when I wasn't in a state of like physical exhaustion and uh like just weakness because I was so like beaten and dehydrated not dehydrated but like malnourished and mm. uh my body was aching and everywhere and I was like sleep deprived. And then I was learning some of the most coolest stuff I've ever learned in my life, but I was, couldn't enjoy it, you know, cause I was being tested all the time. And also I was so fatigued, um, but I still took a lot from those, that course in particular. So what did it, are you able to talk about? I could talk about certain things. Um, and I know, I'll only talk about it because I've heard it on other right. podcasts or read it, Andy McNabb's book. Right. Yes. And that was one of the biggest, um, incidents that ever happened to the like the British Special Forces when he was his patrol was uh captured and some of them escaped and stuff like that. Bravo two zero there. Yeah, and yeah. that was like the uh the seer training that came into play and that's like the worst case scenario for what could happen. So you do go through that uh, and when you come out the other end you have a lot of good 
skills and drills that you could use to save your life and and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's still being rather cryptic. So <laughs> yeah, because this is one that is drilled into you, and also I never want to give away anything right. that can damage guys on the ground. Obviously, um, but that there are a lot other people than we talked about, Ed. Calderon and Ed's manifesto. Yes. He does a lot of the escape and evasion sort of tools and little um, tactics and stuff that the cartels in Mexico are using. Uh, and it's a big interest of mine. I love all that sort of stuff, yeah. you know, and I carry, I learned some things on my course that I carry with me and, and to use should that worst case scenario happen because I do close protection now and like bodyguard and um if I ever was ever kidnapped or if I ever I was ever tied up yeah. plastic cuffed then some there's some good things that to use that, to get out of that um that I would recommend and I know we discussed this I'm I'm going to start uh, making products that people can use maybe even for solo travelers but also in the security industry uh, there's a need for having some like seer type tools to escape from situations if yeah. you're in the worst case scenario you know we um we, we talked about those paracord bracelets that were all the rage at one point <laughs> <Yeah>. in time. And <laughs> I did have friends that were wearing those. I never have one myself. No, I've but. never had one. I remember the, uh, it was a meme where they had, uh, this cartoon character and he's thinking about all these cool things he can do with his paracord bracelet and he's locked in prison and he's using it to cut through bars and abseil out the window and f use it to fish. <laughs> and, and then it showed the reality and his friends were like, huh. Oh, so you wear a bracelet now, huh? Yeah. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> Tactical bracelet. Tactical. Yeah. So, so what sort of CA tools would, uh, would you promote? Well, the, the most effective tool that I ever experienced, which I carry with me when I'm working all the time is a Kevlar cord in a okay. way, because I don't want to give out like handcuff escape things because criminals are out there using these and that's right. another aspect. You don't want to feed the criminal, criminal people out there more, because uh, they actually obviously go and buy these products, watch the training and, and I'm sure they do for Ed's sure. manifesto too. Uh, but mine most effective would be if I was going to get plastic off tape, restrained with tape or rope. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then this, these Kevlar cords, uh, two loops and then a string and it can be folded up very small. Right. Um, and then you can just use your feet in a bicycle motion around and then it just cuts through right. most things apart from metal, obviously. And for people, solo travelers or anyone traveling to high risk areas uh, and for security workers, I think this is a very good tool. So I'm going to be trying, I'm experimenting at the moment um, in a way that, because also it's not metal, so you can carry it when you go on airplanes and right. around. And it, it would also be a good survival tool. Could be garot too. <laughs> Yeah, it could. It would be very good for that if you ever had to. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's funny. You know, uh, I, I think, I think there's definitely something to be said for, um, having the tools, but also having the, the knowledge and the mind to be able to adapt to the situations and, um, use what you have around you or use what you brought with you in, in sort of alternate ways. And, you know, I, I remember years ago I worked for, um, the cable company, I guess we had, I think it was Telus and Shaw or something, whatever it was that we had. And Shaw came over, over from back East and 
decided to offer the cable TV for everyone. And so I got hired and I'm supposed to be doing audits and I got to go around and I got to check to see if people are essentially stealing cable. And if they are, then I got to try and upsell them or disconnect them. Yeah. And when you have to do apartment blocks, they, you got to drive downtown Vancouver, pick up a big set of keys. And then you got your list of all the places you got to go to and you get into the apartments and you get into the, uh, um, into the, uh, the cable rooms or the electrical rooms. And I thought, man, I'm wasting a lot of time driving all the way down to Vancouver. Then I'll have to go to either Richmond or Delta or wherever and, and do these things. I'll just bring lock picks with me. Yeah. Right. And so I was, got very good at just picking the locks. I was allowed to be there. I was permitted to be there. I wasn't doing anything untowards or illegal and, uh, ended up making my own key sets for, uh, the internal locks. I think, well, the, it was Abloy as well as, uh, what was the other one? The ACE, uh, that you'll find on the outside. And you start to get this sort of, uh, pigeonhole and in this narrow frame of reference. And I would just walk up and out come the picks and I pick my way in and, yeah. and, and here I go. And sometimes you're working on a lock for a while. I'm like, ah, oh, come on, maybe it would have been smarter to go. And I realized that, um, when you have that skill set and you have the, uh, the knowledge, you have to always, always be open to alternate ways. Cause I remember working on one for a while only to realize I could probably reach my arm around on this one thing through a little mail slot and just open the door. Oh, there you go. And I'm in. So I had to completely readdress how I, for speed sake, so I get the job done, how I approach these things. And I'd always put the, the tools second. Is there a fast way I can get in? Is there somebody going in through another door and I can just scoot in behind them? Or is there, um, can I reach around the corner? Can I, can I just get a little, uh, uh, I forget what they call it. It uh, made this little sort of Slim Jim type yeah. thing. A shove it. Yeah. <laughs> a anyways. Shimmy, yeah. 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 It's quite a, a niche little skill, the lock picking, and it takes a lot of time. I don't know. You must've got quite good at it. And it's also quite a satisfying thing. When you get it, it's satisfying. Lock. Yeah. So I, I was trying on like, practicing at home on my parents' house and the doors and the front doors. I managed to get them, but I wouldn't be a good burglar. I'd have to spend allocate two hours to get in. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you're in bang, lickety split. Sometimes you're, you're just taking a while yeah. and that's where, um, being able to laterally look at problems. Sometimes it's just a matter of jumping up to the second floor <laughs> and, yeah. and, and getting in. But, um, uh, yeah, on the lock picking side, I, I could hold my own. It was a hobby. I started when I was in grade four, learned, learned it then. And then, nice. uh, would always play around with it, got into a little bit of trouble in my youth. Uh, uh, with it and then learned how not to get in trouble and the right way to do things. So. Yeah. But yeah. I've, I used one of those little guns at one point, you know, that yeah. clicks, this didn't work too good either. No. And they, they works off the bump system. So like, if you, if you think about it, like, um, you take three pennies, I don't, we don't even have pennies anymore, <laughs> three, three quarters and you put them or put two of them together and you ram the third one into it and the one in the middle stays still and the other one goes off. Yeah. That's how those tend to work. And that's where the, the, the bump key kind of, yeah, they've the been around key. forever, but just within the last tens or so years, the internet's kind of, yeah. kind of got those going. But yeah, those little guns, nah, 
Nah, I prefer to breach the door yes. in an explosive manner, to be honest. Well, if that was always an option, I'd say that would yeah. be absolutely the preferred way to do it. Yeah, that's more exciting. Yes. Although you're going loud, but that was kind of the job that I used to do. So yeah, loudness is, is part of it. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So or on the, the line of, uh, sort of CA accessories that you're talking about, is there anything else that you're, uh, you're sort of looking at? Uh, I, I'm very big on privacy and personal privacy. And because I did work in the world of corporate espionage and right. uh, there was a lot of gray areas I t- talked about before. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, like with our cell phones, the, what I've learned is that it's compromised and you have to assume everything is compromised and whether you're worried about the government listening or watching what you're doing or in some sort of algorithm setting, not an actual person sitting mm. there and the FBI watching you personally, which right. is not really the reality. Um, <laughs> or whether you work in a high business sort of setting and the information that you hold and, and use and the business meetings you have could be beneficial to a competitor because that sort of is, is the world that uh, corporate espionage goes down um, or whether you are in a sort of marriage sort of dispute and you're a high net worth individual because that's right. also the area that I was working in, rich people paying us to spy on their spouses or someone they're about to have a divorce with and then right. um, they want custody of the kids and stuff like that. And you have to look for different angles of what crimes or or information could benefit your client. Mm. So, And also for me, I don't really want my phone watching my every move and then advertising about things that are in my environment, which is happening. Um, and people have been saying that for many years, but it, it, it is true and it does listen to you and it does watch you and scans your facial expressions. And we're going into this technology world. I like to have a hard switch that in the evenings I put my phone in a Faraday bag, for mm. instance, which is uh, like, a a signal blocking bag and I yep. put it away. And that's not because I think the government is listening to me or anything. It's mainly yeah. because I don't want to be hanging off my phone all the time uh, when I'm with my family and, and spending time with my daughter, for instance. So I want to have a bit of a balance and, and right. that's a good way to do that. But also if if I was working in security uh, and I was with a client, I would recommend this sort of stuff for business meetings as well. Um, so I've got a few products along those lines that I, I'm in the pipeline coming, which I use quite a lot as well. In my okay. Well, you let life. me know, cause I'm going to get one of those Faraday bags off you. Yeah. Yeah, but, definitely. Uh, we did a, uh, uh, hunting trip recently. We had two separate vehicles and we took a raft up on, uh, uh the Fraser and we took it about a, this, I got a little, a whitewater raft to get about a hundred K down, uh, the river and, um, my vehicle at the bottom figured, well, I don't want to bring my keys with me and possibly lose them or get them wet or whatever. So I'll just. I'll hide them inside my vehicle and I got a push button lock on the outside. I said, but if somebody broke in here, all they got to do, cause it's push button to start is just press a brake and they start on up and oh, yeah. they took my vehicle. So, uh, tried placing it all these different areas and we're thinking, well, maybe, maybe we got to just hide it somewhere else. And, and then, uh. Anyways, we had some materials. I made a quick Faraday bag. Oh, yeah. It worked, right? <laughs> worked good. It's kind of like the old Blockbuster days where you take a, a Blockbuster video and they got the RFID tab there. Yeah. And if you held a, uh, a loony against a big thick RFID and you could, you could pass it through the thing without it going beep. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> I would never do anything. <laughs> Actually, there is a, um, I was asked to do a, uh, a, a, to speak at a event up in Whistler a number of years ago. And it was, um, 
put on by uh, PIABC, Private Investigators Association of British Columbia. And I did my, my little bit, but, um, one that I thought was really interesting was a, um, it was a group, I think it was a, a father son sort of, uh, team that ran a business and they would turn whole rooms into Faraday cages and they would have a special film they put on the window and a, a special paint. And then they paint over top of that again. So people don't see it. And they would put in a, um, a repeater, like either a Wi-Fi or cell repeater in the room that they can operate on a switch. And so everybody comes in, now everybody in this room, if they want to give a lecture or something else, they can turn it off and nobody's got no phones are beeping, nothing's going. But what they can also do is everybody that uh, is talking inside here, they get a copy of that information because ah. it's getting relayed through. Like some pretty interesting stuff. Hmm. And when we talk about everything communicating and everything listening, and I mean, people have smart thermometers, they've got, um, their TV monitors will have, um, smart speakers or their TV is voice command. I mean. I, I, I even remember reading an article, I thought it was kind of interesting. They had a secure computer that wasn't hooked up to the internet. And they said, this is, this is our secure device. So no one can get information off, off here. There's other computers around it that were hooked up to the internet, but this one wasn't, and this was supposed to contain all of the sensitive information, uh, in order to breach that one. So they could remotely access this computer that wasn't hooked up. They actually had someone to go in and physically just take a um, thumb drive and upload a program to the computer. Mm -hmm. But once that program was on there, it would cause the, um, computer to load more into its memory and heat up and the fan would come on and then it would take it off and it would cool off. And they're able to basically through a Morse code signature as a computer heated and cooled. Another computer that was beside it, that was hooked up to the internet could sense those heat variations oh, wow. and very, very slowly they could get some, um, information off that computer. So, wow. you, yeah. you know, you think about it, someone, someone's found a way around it yeah. uh, or even, you know, have you ever played with like, um, laser beams for, uh, audio waves? No, not really. No. Uh, so you can, you can actually transmit, uh, audio through light and you can use laser for concentrated, um, uh, pickup and, and reception of, uh, audio. So if you wanted to, you can use a non-visible IR layer, like visible to the human eye yeah. and reflect it off of, let's say glass. And you can get, pick up those harmonics and listen on somebody as far as that laser oh, wow. beam can, can transmit. Yeah. But, so the, this is new to me. I haven't even heard about this technology, but from what I've learned, yeah. what we know about what is actually in existence is way further down the line. Oh, this is stuff um, I played with as a kid, right? Yeah. I, I can only imagine what they have now. Yeah. Cause in the private sector where I was working in the corporate espionage world, we'd have specialists that would come in to yeah. other companies, maybe not around me. Yeah. And, uh, they would do this sort of Wi-Fi exploitation and, uh, hacking of cell phones. Cause that is the golden a uh, little gold nugget that you can track people wherever they're going. You can learn about every email or everything that they do. And it's mm -hmm. a very big deal. Um, so people that have been doing this in a, in a professional setting for governments tend to move and later in their career, some of them move into the private sector and carry this technology with them. Right. Um, but, and yeah, it's, it's not a good thing, but these aren't the only people that are using it. 
criminal organizations are now going down this line of work and so obviously hackers organizations to exploit people for money one that's come around my friend group recently over in vancouver um some females that are friends of my partner have got emails um saying that they're they have images of them when they're in their like most intimate times gained from their cell phones right um and they've had reports to the police about this and they judged that it was a fraud sort Mm. of thing but it happened to two girls that we know um and whether that is a fraud or not it's still a very stressful thing to go through someone that's saying that if you don't give us this money then we're going to put on naked pictures on the internet on this website of you and that's the thing that's happened to celebrities and i know it's happened to people in the world uh, and we're going to be going into this sort of world now where Mm -hmm. everything can be exploited and every electronical device does have weaknesses yes um so i think like hard measures can be taken like for instance a camera cover on your cell phone you just flip across when you want to use your camera that's not a an extreme thing people use them for their laptops yeah mark zuckerberg's got it on his laptop yes you know um but yeah (laughs) and it's just um just a safeguard really like you don't really want anybody watching you or taking pictures on your phone or listening in on you uh anytime whether that be like a, a government organization a criminal organization or hackers or anyone um mm. so i think we have to take that aspect into consideration now uh, and i'm a big advocate for that because i was a little bit in that world mm-hmm. and it really surprised me how the, pu- the public sector are are so advanced that so advanced and you know people talk about i mean in the firearms training side of things, uh, I've talked to different law enforcement types that will say, I don't want to teach law enforcement tactics. I don't want to teach what we're doing in the, uh, in the firearms training or, um, uh, anything on the, uh, use of force side because the bad guys might get a hold of this and they might want to use it against us. And I've always scratched my head at that one because the bad guys already know if they've got access to the internet, they're going to have access to your tactics and, and what you do. It might not be completely drawn out for them, but all that information is out there. And I've always been a strong proponent of share that information and let it get measured against what the bad guys can do or not, or what other people do or not, and build better and build it stronger. And if you can create something that's so robust, it doesn't matter what they do or they don't know, um, that you're still able to achieve your end goal. That's perfect. Right. Yeah. And that, that's sort of been, uh, sort of my thinking, but, uh, yeah. And then that's also comes into the training that I teach on Instagram and stuff with, uh, I go into a lot of surveillance drills and like to teach people how to detect if they're being followed. Mm. And I, it's a line I've had to toe that I don't want to be giving away drills that could affect operators out on the ground and right. in the military or in the, in the, in the intelligence services. Um, but the reality is that the, the game is changing a lot and, mm-hmm. um, real foot surveillance is still a big aspect, but you can get so much more information from electronic surveillance these days um, that there's benefits for civilians for some of this training, I think, um, because criminals aren't really going to be so up to date on surveillance drills and things. And if you're not a fighting person, if you're not 
capable of fighting on the street or you don't want to, which a lot of people aren't, then they need some other tools or tactics to get out of uncomfortable situations when a guy could be following you home from the right. train station, for instance. And that's a big thing that I try to touch on because I want to give people a plan because most people don't have a plan. It's just hope for the best or... I don't know. Think of it when it happens. That's what most people have. It'll never happen. And you know, I'll deal with it when Mm. my daughter, I purchased your course for uh, my daughter. She's loving it and she's got her workload. She's not done it yet. It's quite a long course, isn't it? Yeah. But she's working her way through. You got a lot of good information in there and she's coming down and she's telling me things she's learning. She's 14 years old and there's things that I will have said to her, but I'm sure it's going to come across in a different way or from some from yourself as an authority that will hopefully stick in a little bit, uh, differently. And, uh, it was interesting because a few weeks ago she went, went to the library with a friend of hers and she's coming back and she was getting harassed by a couple of boys on bikes and they're just sort of typical adolescent sort of thing. But mm-hmm. in hindsight, looking at it, she was uh, quite upset with herself because she didn't feel that she, uh, reacted in a proper way or nothing happened out of the whole incident. But, um, uh, it's the first time that she's been in this sort of a situation. Yeah. And there's a lot of, uh, just being upset because she says, I know you said this, I know that and I, I, in hindsight, I should have done A, B and C. And I think doing a course like the one that you have there, it normalizes and standardizes responses within people. It's one thing for dad to say, Hey, you should do this. It's another thing to just say, Hey, this is how it's normally done. Right. And that social acceptance, I guess, behind it will cause somebody to hopefully make the right decision more quickly. Cause I think a lot of people are just stuck by not wanting to look rude, not wanting to do something that's not normal or not socially Mm. accepted. Yeah, that is a big one. And it's good that she recognizes it and, and is going to improve on yes. what she did. And that is part of why I made the course is because of the experiences that I've had and the people that I've learned from. Um, and when you're growing up and you're young, you need to make these mistakes. And I'm trying to give them a bit of uh, lean, like guidance so they don't make the big mistakes. Right. Um, so they have a plan if things go the wrong way or, and then recognize it early on. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that she's taken the course. She's benefiting from it that, cause this is the demographic. I'm a father myself yes. and it's partly why I created it. And also uh, it's, I'm happy that she's actually taken the course because a lot of people of her age group aren't going to take it. You know, they're not going to be interested in it unless something bad has happened. Right. So it's also out there. People can get it for free or pay what they can. Mm-hmm. And fathers or mothers who are protective, um, take the course and then slowly filter that information, the important stuff down to the people that need it or the people that don't really look for it, but you can teach them right. uh, the most. That was part of the idea as well. It's smart. You know, it's, um, what's it called? It's self-defense without fighting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's specifically geared around situational awareness and geared towards, uh, women. Yeah. But I, everything that's in there is also applicable to men. Yeah. It's and not. there will be other courses coming, but that was the first project. Um, and mainly because of my partner suggested it and said that she had learned a lot from me and she'd like to help out. And also there's a lot of incidents that happen like Vancouver recently, there was a lady that was followed all the way through Chinatown and she actually got a phone out and videoed the guy following her. And I've done an analysis of that video. It's quite a scary thing because the guy knows that he's 
what he's doing. He's a, he's a recurring offender, we find out later down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not phased that she's filming him and he gets very close at times. And luckily it was in the daytime. And luckily this lady goes and associates herself with a group of skaters in a skate park, which is something that I teach um, called apparent allies is to associate yourself with another group or person or a good thing as an authoritative figure. And that's like a action plan Mm. that it's quite obvious to us to do, but to some people they might not think of that, especially if they're in a panic situation. Um, So yeah, there's, there's just different options like that. I think if you're not inclined to fight or you haven't trained in fighting, then fighting probably isn't your best option in a lot of scenarios. But then there is a, a scenario when fighting is your only option. Right. And to be good at fighting, you have to train. So I do send that message out as well. Yes. It's important to have some experience or train. Yeah, and there's definitely something to be said for someone who can carry themselves with the confidence knowing that they can fight mm. in order to be able to mitigate a fight. And I, I remember even just looking like in my youth as a, as a bouncer and just, uh, looking at the, the human dynamic and a bunch of guys in a nightclub and alcohol's involved. And it would always be funny when a person comes up and says, oh, you're a big guy. And, and they start trying to test you out and try you out and, oh, yeah. maybe we should fight. Let's fight. No, no, I don't want to fight. Okay. And you watch them sort of escalate and ramp up. The more you say you don't want to fight the more aggressive they get. And I turn around, okay, let's fight. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it would come back down. And then it would be, it would kind of be a fun little game where I just kind of watch and we just play it back and forth and watch it go up and down and up and down and just trying to see exactly where their, their threshold is, but mm. they're not in their, uh, probably not in their best, most cognitive <laughs> place no, at the alcohol time. Alcohol definitely plays a big part in there, doesn't yeah. it? Especially working the doors. I did that myself. Yeah. yeah it's a great training ground to watch human behavior <laughs> yeah, under the influence of alcohol as well. That's right. And there's no mistakes. There's no question about who is the most aggressive and it's men, isn't it? You oh, 100%. Know? And that's something that I do push out in my course because it's just a fact and, and there's no way you can hide from that. Um, they, <laughs> we've, we've done bad things in the past as a, as a gender, you know, mm-hmm. so we can't hide from that. We need to acknowledge it. And the aggression between men and women can be different too. Mm. I, I remember a grandfather and father, uh, Vancouver police. I don't know when it came in, probably in my grandfather's day, but the, um, I, I guess anti-stalking laws. And I remember it being relayed to me how they brought in some new anti-stalking laws because they figured the, um, ha- would have a tool that they can use about against men who were stalking their wives and. They were surprised to find that the majority of people that they found that were stalking, at least at that time, were women stalking men. But I guess the big difference was, is that when a woman stalked a guy, it didn't typically end in the same level of violence than when a man stalking a woman. So, you know, there's men just genetically, whatever it is, from a simple profiling perspective or the ones that these, uh, um, that women should be looking out for. Yeah. And a lot of it is common sense as well. So a lot of the course I do drill on home, like common sense topics, but most people that take the course and learn about it think, oh yeah, I didn't really think of it in that way. It's just highlighting what we instinctually know anyway, as human beings, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just looking at other angles and, and the things that I've learned throughout my career and teaching to the general population, general public. 
Well, that's what I mean about normalizing it. I mean, somebody can just know, they can know what to do and still not do it because they just, it doesn't, it, it's not something that's sort of ingrained as this is how you respond. Like if you act in a certain way against me instinctually, I will, I will have some gut reactions and gut feelings. But if I realize that it's acceptable and normal for me to take the next couple steps, like you, a person doesn't have to hit me first for me to hit them. The yeah. fight's already on before they, once they're in my space, that fight is on, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that comes with experience as well, doesn't it? Right. Of reading that behavior that is being presented to you. And the first time you're in that experience, you're not going to know when that punch is coming. Right. And you're also not going to know how to get out the way of it. So. Right. Yeah. Or, when the day of the race happens, it's good to, uh not to be in the street in a real situation. It's good to be in a, a training environment first. So you have a bit of a, a backup of what to do. Now you do a fair bit of, uh, uh, training yourself, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I like, uh, I'm a boxer by trade, I'd say from a young age and I did it in the Royal Marines. Um, I won the Royal Marine light heavyweight boxing championship, light heavyweight. I looked a bit different then, but it was muscle. Yeah. Hey, good for you. Good for you. Uh, yeah. And now I do mixed martial arts and particularly my interest is in jujitsu because okay. yeah, it's a very good sport. I love it. I wish I found it a long time ago. Yeah. But yeah. Fighting's always been a part of my, my life and also my growing up, my culture as well as an mm. English man, you know, yeah. Queensbury rules, bare knuckle boxing and stuff. <laughs> I was actually looking into bare knuckle boxing. It's quite barbaric, but also it's kind of traditional from my heritage as being English, you know, totally. it's, it's an interest, although it is, it's a bloody sport and it is quite a niche thing. Right. I can see why fans will be turned off from it, mm. but it's quite raw. That's maybe in the works in the future. <laughs> Interesting. Have you done that before? Well, yeah, many yeah? times, but not in a ring. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I, but, I hear that. But I did have arranged fights as a youngster. Like I was a lad and I had a reputation and mm. people would come into our town and I would meet them and fight them in like parking lot and stuff like that. And, right. Yeah. Which isn't advisable it's not a great thing to do but that was part of my life and i did mm. do that stuff so yeah i do have experience in bare knuckle boxing in that respect <laughs> and, but i always adhered to queensbury rules which is like you fight standing up and then one goes down and then either they give up or they get back up you continue the fight and i okay. always adhered to that and that's quite like a gentleman's agreement and so did most of the people that i had trouble with in the past in my generation but that's not the case anymore, is it? It sure isn't, you know? no. And I've experienced the other end of that, like getting dropped and then people continuing the fight when I was unconscious and I actually mm -hmm. had my whole face, uh, I've got a metal plate in my face here mm. uh, and I had reconstructive surgery because someone was stamping on my head and stuff, you know. Right. For me, that is, is um, it's just so disrespectful, you know. There's an honour in, in, in a bit of combat on the street for when I was doing it in sure. my day. and like it's more of a pride thing it's an ego driven thing it's it's definitely stupid sure <laughs> but it, it happened but to take it further to stamp on someone's head over a spilt drink outside of a pub mm. is not really there's no honor in that but that is the reality we're in these days and also it, that's why i'm teaching fighting is a last resort if you're getting into a fight that's you've made some mistakes that totally. we focus on mainly not to get to that point in the first place, you know? Yeah. No, you're on the ground. You can expect to have everybody else kicking, right? Yeah. You're fighting one person. You can expect there to be more than one person. Mm. Uh, it's, um, 
Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Good to know how to fight and then throw that in the back pocket and use it in an absolute last resort. Yeah. It's, uh, on top of that, the, um, prevalence of people carrying weapons, yep. um, whatever it is, or picking one up that they look around and they can use whatever they want as a weapon. And it's, um, being able to, you know, another big part of that skill set, which I think is important is number one, just, uh, uh, the, the awareness and the avoidance and being able to put yourself in the most beneficial position so that you don't, uh, find yourself in the altercation or interaction to begin with. But number two, and it's something that, uh, some people are very good at is sort of like the verbal judo. And I think that's actually yeah. trademarked verbal yeah, judo. There's a book actually. That's right. It? Yeah. So you got to call it uh, tactical communication. So police used to call it verbal judo and now they call them tatcoms because oh, yeah. they, I guess it's, it's actually trademarked and, uh, being able to de-escalate a situation through proxemics, through your body language, through your, uh, verbal, through your non-verbal. And that's, that's a huge art form as well. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And unfortunately I'm, I'm a beginner in that art form uh, <laughs> and I'll openly admit that that's something that I have to work on and I have been working on insecurity as a bodyguard because mm -hmm. you know, you can't just go into a scrap when you're trying to be looking after someone. Right. The escalation is extremely important and I'm proficient in it, but growing up I was not. So there was always a, I knew when the fight was on and then right. we got to the fight. So that whole awkward, like, I hate the confrontation. I hate standing in front of someone and they're like threatening me. Or, or saying they're going to do something. If you're going to do something, do it. Right. It's on. <laughs> like this whole thing, like either we're going or we're not. So yeah. that was my mentality as a youngster, but that got me into more trouble than, than if I was good at talking my way out of things. Yeah. And that was a gap in my skill set. That's, that's been all, but also I was a troublemaker myself. So, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's all part of the learning process yeah. too. You like yeah. Like you say, hopefully you make those mistakes in small doses and in ways that you can recover from and really ingrain and learn from them. Like my daughter, nothing happened. And there is, she recognizes things that could have been done differently. Mm. Small mistake, build upon it. That's fantastic. This is great experience for people to go through. Yeah. And it's also great that she came and talked to you about it as well. And that shows that you've got a great relationship there, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? We, we try really hard. That's, yeah. uh, that's one thing that's one of my, uh, life priorities is have a strong family. Yeah. And we do, I could, I could care less about anything else. If push comes to shove, have to make sure we've got a strong family unit. Same with my kids. I'd let them know, you know, at some point something could happen to your mom or me. You guys got to be able to look after each other. You got to, just got to be able to know you're confident to look after yourselves and you're always there for each other. So we ingrain that very deeply as well as the honesty part. Mm. I don't care. Just like what you're talking about, the integrity part. D doesn't matter. You got to be honest, right? You yeah. got to let us know. We'll work through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a very important point for parenting as well. And that's the journey that I'm on at the moment yeah. too. Uh, hence why all this training and that and trying to prepare my daughter for the outside world. And I have a bit of a warped perception of the outside world because mm -hmm. I've been in the dark side of it a lot of the time, you know, and preparing to deal with the dark side of it has been my job and it still is. But yeah, I'm kind of, there's balance, isn't there? You have to be prepared. It's better to, what do they say? It's better to be <laughs> a warrior in a garden rather than a gardener in a war. That's right. <laughs> yes. Um, and that preparation thing is going to be difficult too, because of your background and because of well, 
what you've seen in the world, as you say, being warped, I don't know. It's just, it just, it is what it is. It's, it's the world and it's just how you've uh, viewed it, being able to impart what you need without warping your daughter's version of the world as she grows yeah. up. It doesn't matter what we do. I'm sure we're going to make mistakes and we're, yeah. there's going to be something they look back on, but that's, um, that's a difficult tightrope I should imagine for, mm. uh, for you to work through. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously as a protector, self-defense is at the forefront, mm. but I think it should be, especially for jujitsu. If you learn jujitsu from a young age, you've got that that ability throughout your whole life. I don't know what better skill or any sort of self-defense art you could give to a child or to a young person, to be honest, because then that you carry that confidence and that knowing that if something goes bad, I have some experience or I have some moves or an idea of what mm. I can do, my own capabilities. So I, I do have an idea of getting out and then I'll be more confident in her going out and doing all this traveling like I did growing yeah. up, you know, travel, I traveled a lot on my own. Um, and I'm going to be doing a course of solo travel, which is going to incorporate a lot of situational awareness and, and stuff because as a bodyguard, that was one of my niches is taking a family on their vacation. And quite often in Europe, um, they only want one bodyguard, one protector. Mm. Um, and they don't really want you hanging off their shoulder all the time as a traditional bodyguard would do. And this was a niche that I had to fill and they're the client, they pay the bills. So they don't want to see you around them, but they still want a protective bubble around them. And mm. you're just one person in a foreign country. So right. I, have, I have to deal with that sort of and the, the reality is that you can't protect them hundred percent, but you can have contingencies in place. And that is basically life, isn't it? You it can is. have contingencies in place, but you can't always be fully protected. Yeah. And you talk about the martial arts and jujitsu at an early age. That's uh, very important. The one thing that I always try to hammer home and I still do with my kids is the ability to use their voice mm. and scream and create witnesses. Yeah. And even if, you know, the, um, the, the police teach it as well, right? They tell someone to drop that weapon. Well, why would I tell a person to drop that weapon if I didn't see if they had a weapon or not? Well, you just created a whole bunch of other people around yeah. that say, oh, that guy's probably got a weapon, right? Yeah. So you're, you're protecting yourself in the instance. You're using your voice in a loud way, but you're also creating witnesses, which you've got your incident, pre-incident, let's avoid it, incident, okay, fights on, and post-incident, man, that's going to be with you for a long time. Everybody can go and look over this and if it reaches a courtroom, you're going to be into it for a number of years and then it's in the back of your head for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. So how do you deal with that whole post-incident thing? And if you can create witnesses that might be able to help you with your, the legal side and if you're uh, taking the proper steps and like what you've put together in your course here that can hopefully, uh, help the, the mental reframing of, of what happened to be a bit more of a, a positive thing, even if it's, you did everything wrong and this is a learning experience. Yeah. And there's also aspects of my course that goes into after an incident, how do we get this bad guy off the streets in the most effective way? How do we report it to the police and how do we memorize important things about them? So I was speaking to retired police officers and they say it's, yeah, it's good to have a full description, but when all the chaos is happening, it's good to remember one distinctive thing about this person that can't be changed. And that's a, an obvious thing, like a scar or a tattoo or some a facial feature that 
you is distinctive and you would remember and could be found when they're walking around the street or and it also could be identified on a lineup as well right um, so yeah i do go into this and i wrote an ebook that was part of the course which is attached to it about after the incident so there's a lot of things and it even goes into active shooters and things like that um and what to do because yeah there's a lot of i'm gonna have to take this course i got it for my <laughs> daughter i'm gonna have to take this course yeah <laughs> Yeah, so this is an ebook that's attached to it, which is just a little um, side thing, but it's actually, I could probably, if I wanted to, sell it on its own as a book because it's yeah. it's a lot of my knowledge from yeah. various experiences into one thing. And also I've got a connection with like police officers, other special forces guys who are currently in, um, intelligence agency staff. Yeah. Like I work amongst these people all the time and security experts and I just bounce my ideas off them and then they say other ideas and I collate them into my courses and my training. So it's a perfect setup actually. No kidding. So we're going to have links on both on the, uh, the YouTube and on the podcast and people can pull it up and whatever they, their podcast provider and it'll link over. We'll make sure we have links over oh, to great. that. Yeah. Thanks. So people can check it out. Um, one of the other things that, uh, uh, we've been talking about a little bit, which I don't know much about, but I'm love learning and I'm learning more on, and that's about, uh, uh, dealing with stress and after action stress and all the rest. I mean, it's, um, it seems to be an area of science and psychology that is rapidly changing, mm. rapidly growing, and people are t taking new and unique approaches to helping people work through that whole after action, after where there's PTSD, post-traumatic stress, uh, disorder. Yeah. I think they're actually trying to move away from calling it a disorder, but, um, yeah. uh, or it's just, uh, anxiety or depression or whatever else related to dealing with the after action. And that's something that you've had some experience with. Yeah. Well, personally, I didn't get to fulfill my job of going on operations. Um, right. but I have other experiences in my life where I've had violent experiences, but I am in around people that have been to war multiple times and had, and also now I'm around police in the security industry mm -hmm. who have had very horrendous experiences while on the, in the line of duty. And I've, it's become a fascination of mine of how they deal with it. And also I have a lot of sympathy for them doing their job to protect us in our society. Um, especially obviously the military guys and girls, but also the police who I don't feel get the credit of or the military do because they're mm. literally, they're on operations every day. They don't really have any downtime. Um, and I have someone close to me that deals with PTSD as well. And I've been looking at other avenues for help, um, and therapy and all the normal avenues are obviously good and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychologist myself, right. but I do read and research a lot of things. Uh, and in the past two years, I've gone down some rabbit holes that's led me to psychedelic uh, assisted therapies, um, particularly for veterans, PTSD. Right. And I really delved into this subject and I can't believe what I found and I can't believe that it's not accessible for people. And I think it will be in coming years because the studies and the science behind it is so overwhelmingly positive. Um, but I think we need to jumpstart that now because suicide rates are through the roof and we all have personal people that we know, mm -hmm. especially in my background as a lot of guys, particularly I say guys because I, Royal Marines is all men and stuff right. anyway, that 
are struggling and there's a lot of stigma around talking about things and every person in the police or in the military that I know have been to combat and have traumatic experiences, the recurring theme is that they don't get the support that they need mm. and I know that there's a lot of people annoyed with the military service and stuff because they just get chewed up and spat out mm. and that is the reality for me what I've seen that is what happens you're, mm -hmm. you're no longer useful so you're gone and the machine just keeps rolling and you're just a, a waste product out the side um, and there's some organizations out there helping and some support but they need something else and the, the whole psychedelic assisted therapy is something that I've been reading about and researching and about to make a big step in my life uh, to move down to Costa Rica uh, where there's some actual centers. There's ayahuasca therapy centers and also psilocybin, which is the main one that I'm interested in, hmm. um, where veterans can travel down and bypass because obviously there's legal perimeters in Canada and my home country right. and America, which are slowly being challenged now. Yeah. Um, and the FDA is looking at psilocybin as a medical um, drug, like a medical substance uh, for people. Right. But it's taken time and there's a stigma around it and it's the public's perception which is blocking it in my mind, I think. Mm. So as soon as the public change, then the politicians will get hold of it when they realize that people support it and then this could be an avenue that is like literally like a magic pill um, for people that are struggling and have had other avenues of support this isn't the be all and end all i'm not saying it is i just mm. feel like it should be an option to people who are maybe on their last legs have got nowhere to turn or they're alone and they don't want to talk to anybody else mm -hmm. then why who, who's to say that you can't allow someone to, t to take a substance in a like a, a medical setting with a therapist there not taking mushrooms and running around the forest <laughs> i'm not saying that you know uh, i am um, there's a fellow his name will come to me. He's got a podcast called Diary of a CEO, British fellow. And he had a, uh, an individual, uh, who is, uh, operating on the forefront of, uh, using psilocybin, I guess, and other substances for treating depression and anxiety and PTSD. And this guy went down to Costa Rica as well. And if I'm recalling it correctly, and he was talking about, um, he was referencing, and I've never cross-checked or cross-referenced it, but re referencing a lot of different, um, uh, uh, scientific articles, Stephen, Stephen something Bartlett, it'll come to me. Okay. Anyways, uh, I find it, well, I find it really interesting. Now, I mean, from the PTSD side, we had Todd Heisey from Veteran Hunters who deals with, uh, veterans with PTSD and. Uh, he uses hunting as a way to be present and out in the, in the woods. And, uh, he was, I learned a lot from him talking back and forth about the people he works with and the struggles that he's had and, uh, how PTSD is something that is, um, constantly changing. I mean, I think the DSM four defined it in one way, DSM five has changed that and kind of changed the term of trauma, what that actually means. And, and they're starting to learn that you can actually, um, uh, pass on some of the, uh, the traits to your kids apparently and to your, to your family members, cause you either are experiencing it from your direct experience, mm. you're dealing with it indirectly. Let's say like a, um, a 911 operator 
or you're dealing with it through, um, I, I forget there's a third way that they mentioned, but essentially like your kids coming back and seeing how you operate and deal with things. And yeah. so there's, there's a lot of information out there. Um, like I said, I haven't done uh, my own personal research on it, but the one thing that always has struck me is the reluctance for people to come out and talk about it and the stigma that's associated with, um, looking at alternative medicine or alternative ways to deal with, with anything, right? I mean, mm. no, let's not get started about, <laughs> about some of the other things that are going on in the world at the moment, yeah. but, um, I, I guess traditionally they've had talk therapy, right? And they just try and uh, rewire the brain and generate new neural pathways through, uh, uh, helping a person experience an event or, uh, relate to a, an event differently, or they've got, uh, antipsychotics or antidepressants hmm. and, uh, the selective ser serotonin, uh, reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs or SNRIs or whatever they have. And that's just where everyone's been looking. And, uh, when you started talking a bit about the, like, let's say psilocybin for the de treatment of depression or, uh, PTSD or anxiety, obviously I've heard about this before, but I started, I just started to scratch the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of information out there, but it, and it seems like people have been looking at this for a very long time. How come? How come we're not at a point here where people are willing to kind of take that next step? Everything looks experimental. Yeah. It's because of the, the war on drugs back in the day in the sixties, you know, they were all categorized as the same A class sort of thing. And there was a lot of, a, there's a campaign against it mm. and, and the, it goes back to the war in Vietnam and, and all the hippies basically, you right. know, um, <laughs> but since that time that has affected our perception of it over like my perception, what I learned in school, I'm sure what you learned in school and totally. stuff. Um, and now only recently in the two thousands that studies have been allowed to happen again. And it's, it's really grown some momentum. Um, and I can't cite the studies cause I don't have a good enough memory, Sure, uh, but the things that I've read and seen for one instance, uh, which Georgian Peterson talks about, uh, after one psilocybin session, um, for smokers, 80% of the people that were smoking actually quit smoking and then three months down the line had still not had a cigarette since that session. And it isn't just taking mushrooms, it's like integration uh, and, and talking about afterwards. Um, and the, the results from that is astounding, really. Um, and similar things like that I've read about and I actually have found that psychologists and psychiatrists are quite welcoming of this new age uh, of the psychedelics coming in because they've been their hands have been tied they haven't had the tools or the medicines really they, they're given all these drugs that kind of numb symptoms um but psilocybin and other substances used in the right way can actually cure the source of the pain um in a way which is incredible that's right. what we need right now and um, not just for ptsd but there's a high number of depressed people around the world and mm -hmm. lots of other issues, uh, even addiction and maybe not psilocybin, but other substances like ibogaine. I think I'm saying that right, but maybe yeah. not, um, is, is very powerful in curing addiction of opioids, for instance. So I think this is something that is going to be exploding over the next few years, but I think we need to look at it now. 
And I'm also in contact with an organization called Heroic Hearts, where they're bypassing the legal requirements of uh, the United States and England uh, and sending veterans. It's a charity to, uh, there's a center in Costa Rica and a few around that region of South America uh, to have experiences uh, and and deal with their traumas in this way. And they're having a lot of positive results. Um, and to question that, I don't see the argument because the people that are going are already in pain and they've already, most of the time, ex- gone through every avenue available to them mm. and they're looking for help. And if some of those, if five out of 10 of those come back and have a positive outlook on it, and I can tell you it's more than five from yeah. my experience of speaking to people and, and reading the studies, there's there's no downside to that, uh, in my opinion. I, you know, what I've always found interesting is personal find themselves in a situation where they've got uh, some, some mental health problems and then uh, mental health has always had this social stigma, can't talk about it. You're weak if you have mental health problems or whatever it is and be uh, sort of hidden away. I like the fact that it's being talked about more. I mean, with COVID, I'm, there's lots of people that are struggling with trying to keep a business going or have social connections or, um, mental health is, is being talked about, I think anyways, on a, on a greater scale, mm-hmm. but you, you look at the, um, you take a look at the approach to the mental health and the one thing that has kind of stuck out in our conversations is, uh, you can, you can do talk therapy and that's good, bad. It can provide people with framework and tools to work with and, but you got to have somebody who's matched up to your personality. I mean, if you got somebody who's, um, ex-military and they're talking with a talk therapist who's, does not have the same way, it was completely unable to relate. It's not going to have as much value. Um, there's medications, but these medications seem to be something that are an ongoing prescription and one that will change as your body chemistry changes, because everyone's body chemistry is different and they're kind of like just putting a little bit of uh, chemicals in the water to see what color it turns and well, let's try a little bit of this one. Let's try a little bit of that one and we'll see how long it lasts for until we have to kind of change it up again. But from the little bit I've been looking at and that you've been talking about, um, these treatments seem to be more focused on single use. Like I've seen, they've got this microdosing thing, but it's also like single event, one and done, which sounds like a magic pill and it sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but I think that's probably the most interesting aspect out of all of this. If you can find something where you don't have to have an ongoing thing to inhibit you, uh, reuptake inhibitors or whatever it is. I, I would guess that number one, a person would want to take a look at what their, their actual situation is. Cause if you're, um, working in a tiny little cubicle every day underneath fluorescent lights for long hours and going home and you have no social connections and so no social network and you're doing that on a regular basis, you can medicate that person till the end of the time, but you're just, you're just putting band-aids on a problem, right? Yeah. So I would think a person would really want to try and drill down and assess what their situation is so they can change it, lead a more healthy lifestyle, more exercise, better diet and better social connections. Um, but from what you've been saying, it sounds like from your research anyways, these, uh, uh, 
these events, these psilocybin events, or what, what did you call it? A guided? It's, um, like psychedelic assistive therapy. That's or? it. Yeah. Yeah. Th these, these are more of a, uh, individual thing, not like some ongoing. Yeah. So it's a one session of the psilocybin with the ayahuasca, you do a few sessions, but you don't just arrive and then do it. It's like a buildup of talking about it, learning about the, the substance and, and the culture of it as well, having the session and then speaking with a therapist afterwards. So you do have this talk therapy afterwards, which is mm. extremely beneficial if, if you're going to do it. Okay. And that's just psilocybin. But in a, like a, a medical setting for it to happen inside Canada, which there are clinical trials, trials happening and Vancouver, UBC are quite instrumental in this. And it's quite interesting why I've ended up in this environment and connected with these people around here. And also I've invested in the industry as well because I want to support it. And mm. There's quite a boom, quite yeah. the shroom boom uh, for investment. And a lot of those companies are based in Vancouver. Okay. So quite forward thinking in this country. I think Canada could make that step first and I hope they do because they do need something to deal with a lot of the problems, mental health issues that we have in the society here. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of it being a one session thing and not ongoing is kind of unbelievable. And if you don't believe what I'm saying, I do urge you to, um, research. And there's one book that I've read, um, called, uh, how to change your mind. Um, let me just think Michael Pollan is the author okay. and he's a well-established established author who's been on the Joe Rogan experience and things. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was very much against psychedelics and then he decided to embark on this journey where he, he took the substances, researched a lot, and then he wrote a book about it and he changed his perception of it. And he challenges people to just think of it as a, as a new medicine mm. basically. And it isn't going to affect the everyday person, no one's coming to your house and saying, you need to try this, right. <laughs> this mag magic mushroom, you know, we're, we're talking about a medicine for people that need the help. And it's not something that's new for me. It feels very natural that to the fact that they grow up on the fields, like not far from here, you know, <laughs> the Amanita muscaria mushroom right. with the, the, the red one with the, yeah, dots. yeah. The, the Santa that's, Claus one. Yeah. They got it in my kid's school. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that isn't one that you should use. That's a, a bad one. That's not psilocybin. It's a different. But you might find some bullets. Bullets. I always get in trouble. Bullets. Bullets. You might find some bullets near that. If you're yeah. looking for like the King bullet or anything else, yeah. look for the Anamita muscaria. Yeah. I wouldn't advise ever picking mushrooms. That's, <laughs> that's a bad thing to do. But, um, yeah, to do that, these things are not like a synthetic material that's made by pharmaceutical companies. These things grow all over the world and they've been used by cultures in different various parts of the world for many years, um, as a medicine, mm. uh, I think we should look at that. I think it's something, it says something. And I'll, I'll tell you now, I've personally used psilocybin because I didn't want to advocate for something that I don't have experience on. Um, so I've, I've done two sessions personally. Yeah. Um, and. What's it, it like? Uh, it wasn't a mind blowing. I wasn't seeing like little creatures and things like that. Mm. Uh, it was done in my house in a, like everything quiet and in the darkness. Um, take a dose and then have a sitter outside who would assist me if I needed it. Um, so you're completely alone as you're going through this? Yeah, it's an internal process. So you take it and then you'd lie down and be in darkness preferably. And for me, what I got out of it was, uh, that 
basically it grounded me and showed me that I need to focus on the important things in my life and not keep looking ahead to the next thing because that's something that I've had in me from a young age always mm. focusing on the next goal the next goal and I kind of can't do that now that I have a, a daughter like her reality is waking up every day and I create that because we're in the same house you know right. if I'm stressed about work or finances that affects her and this is her life and it, it just made me check myself and think right it's a bit of a reset here I need to focus on being a better husband a better father um balance my life a bit more um mm. I'm a healthy person anyway, I, I would admit. Um, but it also s steered me towards going out in nature. We go on a lot more hikes because of it. Really? Yeah. It's, it was a strange experience. And like, I wouldn't say like go and do it, everyone do it. I just did it because I, I, w I don't want to be advocating for something that turns out to be <laughs> yeah. a ludicrous thing right. or dangerous. Um, and if it does become a normalized thing in society then it wouldn't be taking it on your own it'd be in a, a center retreat or like a medical setting where you have professionals to guide you mm -hmm. um but for me i think it is a it's something to be looked at and not even on your spiritual side a lot of the people that are surrounded in this area um particularly when i go to costa rica i know they're there because <laughs> they're quite um hippie-ish the drippy you know? hippies yeah that's it <laughs> they're taking their crystals and washing them in waterfalls on a full moon that sort of thing who am i to judge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these people are a bit strange to me sure but you know they're they may, I may have something to learn from these people, yep. especially in the healing aspect, because they seem quite at peace with their life and at one with nature. And I think that's something that we do need as a society as well. Um, but I'm experimenting in terms of, I want to try and advocate because I think the public perception is the one, the big hurdle. Mm -hmm. And because I have a, a TikTok following and stuff like that, I'm going to try and do some work with heroic hearts I also have my own tiktok that i've just started called do the recce um do oh, the reconnaissance just yeah. to highlight studies highlight information that comes out just so people couldn't look at it and read and just learn a bit more and have a bit of an open mind about the subjects because yeah i think we're going in that direction for a mental health side of things and i don't think there should be too much pushback if it's shown to help and uh, for my opinion it has been shown to help a lot Interesting. Well, that spirituality side, I've read that some people will have that psilocybin experience and up to a year later still be feeling the benefits of, I guess people call it or refer to it as sort of a profound spiritual experience. And I guess spirituality is going to be something different for everybody, right? Whether it's some, some person in the sky or, or some connection with nature or connection with others or what, whatever it is, but that, that spirituality feeling seems to be pretty heavily intertwined with the whole psilocybin thing. Yeah. And for me, I, I don't know if I got this spiritual side of things come out, but I just had a, a like a grounding moment where I was realized that I'm the, like, I actually feel like a tribesman is yeah. what came to mind in for me, like I am a protector of my family. I'm a, like an alpha male yep. and don't hide from that. Just that is who I am. That's mm. what I've grown up being. Like acknowledge that that is what my role in this family is. Like, I'm the protector here. Um, and also realize what's important. 
and what is important is my family like inside these walls of my home inside these walls of my mind as well is uh things that i need to address and deal with rather than just looking at in the future oh, if i get this uh achievement then i'll be successful i'll be happy once i get there mm. um and I don't do meditation or anything like that, but these spiritual people are talking about meditation. I would like to go down that avenue, but I haven't experienced that yet. Interesting. Well. And that, that statement, I will be happy when mm. I'll be happy when I get there, when I achieve this, I'll be happy. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of people can really benefit from. Uh, and, and I think, I think there's a lot to be said for meditation as well, like you're saying, mm. but how do you. Uh, take a look at what you currently have and be happy for what you currently do have, right? And there's going to be people in situations where yes, there's going to be things in their life they should be looking at making a positive change towards, which will probably ultimately lead to more happiness from them. But so often I find people are spending their time comparing themselves to what their definition or ideal of what happiness should be and completely missing the plot that what you're experiencing in that moment is in fact, what most people should strive towards. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, uh. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm trying to take into account the, the older generation, they're giving me advice at work and things. And there's a lot of people that are divorced mm -hmm. in my line of work who've spent their time working and missed out on spending time with their children and their wife, they've neglected attention to their wife or, mm -hmm. or, or caring for them, uh, drawn, grown apart. And I'm trying to look at that and put that into my own life and realize what is important. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to go down to Costa Rica. I'm going to try and work as a fixer in the industry we call a fixer. So if people are interested in, in, if they're on their last legs, like they, they're, have nowhere to turn, then I'm going to have a site where you can speak to me and I'll try and organize and give you just information about the centers and what happens. And I'm mm. just going to try and expand my knowledge, um, whilst down there, make connections and try and help in any way I can. And I've been in contact with, uh, Jesse Gould, who's the, the CEO of the, um, who are at carts, which is quite a, they had a New York times article written uh, a couple of years back and they're like the leader for veterans. And there's one in the UK as well, who are at carts UK. Okay. So I'm going to try and liaise with them and help them out as well because they're doing great work. Very cool. Well, we'll get some of those links. We'll put them on here as well. So anybody who wants to learn more can look into it. Yeah. I find it fascinating. I find it very interesting. I've talked to other people that have been through, uh, different modalities for dealing with their anxiety, depression, or PTSD. And, um, some people are ardently against any sort of uh, narcotics based on simply the social stigma. Uh, and I know some people have had family histories of, um, a drug or alcohol abuse, and they just, they have that ingrained in their mind as, uh, they won't even take doctor prescribed, uh, medications, but, um, I guess, you know, the first step in all of these things is just sort of normalizing the conversation. And so everyone being different and different body chemistries and different mental makeups and cognitive and resiliencies can start choosing from the, the plethora of different options that are available out there. Cause maybe psilocybin is great for one and not for another, maybe talks great for somebody and yeah. not somebody else. But and I they definitely need a, a doctor or a specialist to decide these things and, and right. siphon out the people that would 
benefit from it or not, and I'm not that person to do that. No. I'm just trying to push the uh, the, the conversation, you know, yeah, and yeah. and bring it to the forefront of people's minds. And I think because I was in the special forces, there's this. I think we're the people that are it first in, you know. Where these are the guys that mm -hmm. are jumping out of airplanes, jumping out of helos into the yep. into the water, doing all this dangerous stuff, and then we should be making this leap as well because we're the leaders of the military. Um, people look up to us, and if there is weight behind what I'm saying, if you don't believe there is, then have a look yourself, do the recce, mm -hmm. <laughs> and if we can make this change and help our brothers, then let's do it. And that, that's my perspective. That's fantastic, Sonny. Is there anything else that we should be talking about? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think, I think we've covered quite a, a good range. Of I things. think we did. Yeah. Do the recce. I like it. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming back on the Silver Core podcast. I always enjoy speaking with you. Yeah, you too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.